Welcome, one and all, to the Film Harmonic with your hosts, Noah East and Andy Ferguson. It is episode 66, and for the first time in a good while, we don't have a single new film to discuss. So we're forced to call an audible, and we will each count down our pick six choices for the best film of a specific year that the roll of a dice decided for us. Leading us into the throwback challenge to close out the show, in which we were so intrigued by the scene in Charlie Kaufman's new film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, where the two main characters discuss at length the John Cassavetes' 1974 film, A Woman Under the Influence, that we decided to roll the dice with it as our throwback for the week. So, Andy, let's go ahead and get started, because um, while we don't have any new films to discuss, we, uh, we still have a jam-packed show. Yes, we do. Let's get this thing rolling. So without a lead film of substance to review this week, we are going to kick things off by going right into our randomized double-barreled pick-six segment. If you caught last week's show, we rolled dice and both got fives. So Andy will be ranking the six best films of 2015, and I will do the same with the year 1994. So starting as always with you, Andy, what is number six on your list of the best films of 2015? Uh, is this the first time we've ever started a show with a pick six? It is. That's why it feels so awkward. It's strange, right? (laughs) So we get Tenet and we get, I'm thinking of ending things in one week Mm -hmm. and then the world decides to give us nothing this week. Yeah. And then, and then wait till listeners find out what next week has (laughs) in store. You can't balance that out a little bit. Look at the calendar and go, oh yeah, let's, let's throw one movie this week. No, nah, nah, nothing. So here we are. Um, Yeah. I, we each chose six years, and there was a different year for a different number on the die. And the newest, the most recent year showed up on mine. That's 2015. Uh, so I had most of these movies already kind of fresh in the brain. So mm-hmm. I didn't re-watch a whole bunch. Because I've actually, we've done so much movie watching over the last several years. Specifically over the last like decade that we see everything that comes out for the most part. We go to the theater and see most everything. So I didn't have a lot of, I didn't have really any first time watches. I don't think. Um, So anyway, number six on my best films of the year, 2015 is Todd Haynes's film, Carol. Um, I think widely considered his most critically acclaimed film. um, Even though he's made some, some films that are, held up in high regard like safe safe has found a new resurgence this year for good reason and um the other film he did with julianne moore far from heaven was a pretty big is is like it's held in high esteem as well but this one the film set in the 50s tackling a relationship between two women that is most certainly not seen as something that should be public in this era uh, played by Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara. I think these are two perfectly cast roles. Um, they totally understand what Haynes is trying to do here. They fit into this world really well. And I think both of them, I would consider this among their best performances, each one of them. They're pretty amazing in this. And you really feel the tension and the chemistry of these characters and these actors. Um, in addition to that, you have some people who fit right into this time period as well. Sarah Paulson and Kyle Chandler, Kyle Chandler, 
Chandler just looks like, yeah, you know, like he was airlifted out of the fifties. Yes, yeah. yeah, I mean, like he should have been in Mad Men. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. like why was he not in Mad Men? He was probably the the runner up at the auditions for Don Draper. He's in so many fucking television shows, and he can't be in Mad Men. Yeah, like, what, what's going on here? Anyway, <laughs> um, this is really uh, this was a really interesting movie at the time. Um, it it caused a lot of kind of like. It, it was coming out, I think, at the at the really kind of big, big moment for the Me Too thing. I, I think maybe even a little bit before it, but it kind of ushered in that movement. And I think that the statement that this movie was making is very, it was on the cusp of, you know, where we're at, where we were going with the Trump era of America. And I think that it speaks loudly now to, holds up really well. Uh, it's only five years old. It's, it's funny because some of these movies, when you rewatch them, it's like, mm, yes, it's only five years old, but <laughs> it exists in a world that is so different yeah. than we're living in now. And this is one of those movies. It's, yeah, it's a time capsule air, like period piece, but it's also very kind of like important for today's, you know, kind of climate. And so, Really couldn't leave it off this list. It's number six for me. I've never seen it. I've always wanted to. I just mm. have have never gotten around to it. But I'm pretty familiar with the score because it's, it was one of the standout scores of that year too. And and I catch up on, on a lot of film scores whether I've seen the film or not. So you haven't seen a ton of Haynes then because you haven't seen Safe. Have you seen? You've seen Mildred Pierce, right? No, I've no. no I'm not sure I've seen any. Oh, so. Interesting. But if if I were just to start with one, it'd either be this or safe. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I don't think you're big into you're not into Dylan enough to see his film I'm Not There, the crazy biopic. That's that right. I have made. seen yeah. that actually. Okay. I okay. have seen that actually. Okay. Yeah. I've never seen time. the film Velvet Goldmine from the nineties that he made um with Jonathan Reese Myers. And I think I think Ewan McGregor's in that. Um, well, that's a terrific segue because mm. the number six film on my list of the best films of 1994 stars Ewan McGregor, and that is Danny Boyle's Shallow Grave. You've always had an affinity for this movie. Yeah, and I rewatched this week to, to make sure that it still holds up, and uh, you know, it does. Um, it very well still might be my favorite Danny Boyle film. I don't know, he's He's been, talk about hit or miss, Boyle is... Oh boy very hit over hit and miss and and oftentimes style over substance um this is a kind of like perfect mixture of style and substance um and at the front of it is three really great performances by it's it's the three roommates in the film that's Hugh mcgregor christopher eccleston and carrie fox um and for those who haven't seen this this was danny boyle's uh debut uh, feature debut um, and it's three uh, Scottish flatmates who need to get a fourth roommate. And they're right out of the gate, they're auditioning roommates. They find one. And he, the next day, they find him dead in his room with a bunch of money. And they decide they're going to ditch the body and keep the money. And boy, was that a bad idea because people come looking for the money. And they're not. Um, career criminals who like know what they're doing um and, and so you get some some very like macabre comedy uh that just automatically is going to come into play with this um and so it's got a lot of those like 
quintessential Danny Boyle, like stylistic flourishes, the, the really quick editing, moving the camera very fast, um, weird colors, weird, weird editing, pacing, that kind of thing. But in a film like this, because of that, that frenetic pacing and like editing makes sense because of the anxiousness and the, the, the stressful situation that, that these people are in. So it kind of fits, you know, um, I, I really enjoyed the performances, but, uh, but Boyle is actually one of the best things about the film because at this time he hadn't learned to show off that much yet. So it's kind of reined in a little bit and it's just, it's more fun than flashy this early on. Um, yeah, I, I, like you said, I've, I've always had quite an affinity for this film. Um, I probably would dial it back a half a star or, or more now that I've rewatched it again. But um, it's still really, really solid. One of the better debuts of that decade and one of the best films of 1994. So number six on my list, Shallow Grave. Yeah, I've always liked it too. And you know how much I've even talked on the show about how I'm just so iffy on him Yeah, as a director. But yeah, I think, I think I would agree with what you said that, yeah, he was still trying to find his footing. So he didn't, you know, he, he was just trying to scrap together a, a movie at this point and and it is kind of a, a fun, infectious kind of, just kind of a, a fun little movie instead of this big outpouring of, look at all the tricks I have up my sleeve, you know? Yeah, and yeah. it doesn't take itself too seriously because mm-hmm. it still has fun with this like darkly comic. There's pre- good comedy premise. in this film, yeah. Yeah, especially from McGregor. He's, you could see why he would end up becoming a star. Well, immediately after this would be train spotting for him. And like well. Eccleston is kind of the... um he's the like the very dour and serious one who's the nerd who doesn't doesn't mm-hmm. want to go along with it at first um and then the femme fatale played by carrie fox who kind of pits the two roommates against one another to get what she wants and it all ends up very tragic um but uh it's 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 really tightly wound like screenplay mixed with the that stylistic stuff that that boyle hadn't started overdoing yet yeah um, and it kind of all blends into this nice little perfect mixture. It's a really, really solid film. I love it. Fun number sixes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What's number five for you? Uh, number five for me is a film that, uh, i, I got to be honest, I thought would rank a little bit higher, um, but some different kind of watches and different revisits changed my mind on some other things. So nevertheless, it's still on the list, and that's Charlie Kaufman's Anomalisa. Um. This was the second film he actually directed. He co-directed it um, with Duke Johnson mm-hmm. this time around. And it's um, we've talked about this movie on the podcast. It's entirely um, stop-motion animated film. We, we talked about it fairly recently. I think we touched on it last week because we were talking about Kaufman in general. Yeah, and um, I, I had it on my best of the decade list. Yes, you yeah. did, yes. Um, again, this is David Thewlis working with Kaufman. Uh, it's mainly just Thewlis, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Tom Noonan as voice, as the voices in this film. All excellent. But it is a very depressing film, and it is a, but it is also a darkly funny film in the way that only he can do. Um, there's a lot of <laughs> uncomfortable moments in the only, the only way he can pull them off. There's some strange things that really you don't see a lot in animated films that go on in this movie. <laughs> and um, 
as it reaches its third act, things completely go haywire, as they often do in Kaufman films. And this is arguably one of his best. Um, it's hard to say. It's hard to rank his movies. If we ever do a pick six of his movies one day, that's going to be very hard to rank them. Yeah. There won't be a lot of films to pull from, but it's still going to be very hard to rank them. Yeah. Like, I don't know where right now I would say of everything he's ever worked on, where this would land for me. It's really hard because I need to watch. I'm thinking of ending things more rewatches of that rewatches of this, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I've seen it twice only. Um, his films are movies. I think if you're interested in him enough, you do put it on the list to say, I need to rewatch this at some point, but you actually, I mean, you kind of have to take some time between yeah, you're, watches. You're going to put it on your list to rewatch and you're also going to put off rewatching it for a while. It's going <laughs> to be there and you're going to look at it from time to time. You're going to go, not right now. Not I'm, right now. I mean, even his like most commercially accessible stuff like Eternal Sunshine, like, mm -hmm. you know, that's it's not an it's not the easiest watch in the world and it's not something you want to watch all the time. Yeah. I, know, I know some people that like really, really love that film and they're screaming right now in, in, in their car saying, oh, I, I watch it every other month or, you know, I hope they are. That'd be fun. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I don't need to harp too much about this movie. It is number five on my list. Anomaly. So. Um, number five on my list, oddly enough, we, we've got a, some, some interesting corollaries here. Number five on my list was a film that I expected to rank higher on this list, but like you, some first time watches and some rewatches put it, uh, closer to the bottom than closer to the top where I thought that was going to be. And that's Steve James's documentary hoop dreams, mm. which is, um, Roger Ebert famously said it was the number one best film of the decade of the nineties. Um, it's definitely the best documentary of the night of the nineties. If you ask me. Um, I, I mean, I still really love this film. Uh, and for those that aren't aware, you don't have to be a basketball fan to watch, to, to care about and enjoy this film. My, my girlfriend watched portions of it with me while she was doing other things. And she was like, wow, this is, this is really actually pretty engaging and interesting. And it's uh, deeply human. It gets to the core of these people's lives. Exactly. And that's what makes it so special. So for those that aren't, aren't, you know, familiar hoop dreams, is a film that uh, Steve James started filming in the in like 1990, um, and it follows these two inner city Chicago uh, teenagers when they start their freshman year of high school, and they're both up and coming like high school basketball stars. One is William Gates, and the other is Arthur Agee, and they both start out at St. Joseph's High School. It's a private Catholic high school. Um, that is has quite a basketball po program, and the head coach of the of the um, program, Coach Pingator, is just a nationally renowned high school basketball coach. Um, for all sorts of reasons, uh, you can speculate which um, Arthur ends up going to public school for the rest of his tenure, and so it follows these two guys, Gates and Ag, as you know they have two very different high school basketball careers, um, Gates being the much more lauded of them. And AG is the one who, in the end, actually has more success in his, in his high school basketball career, at least, like taking his team further than Gates ever was able to take his. Um, but it's, it's fascinating to follow these kids for four whole years and, and more because it gets even, you know, there's, there's another like half hour to the film where they're in college. Um, 
And it's just interesting to watch their family lives, especially Arthur Agee's family life with his father, who comes in and out of his life, was a drug addict, and then finds Jesus. And then, you know, it's it that stuff is so powerful and moving. And just, you know, how committed they are to basketball and how much that's all they care about. Um, especially for Arthur, much to the detriment of his schoolwork. You see Gates like kind of blossom at St. Joe's where Arthur never was able to. And, uh, you know, it's just basketball is an obsession for these guys, especially in, in the, in the um, shadow of Michael Jordan, who there's, I mean, these kids, their walls are just plastered with Jordan, Jordan memorabilia and posters. But for them, especially Isaiah Thomas, who was a Chicago uh, high school basketball player who went to St. Joe's. Um, and so both of them get compared uh, constantly to Thomas, but it's just, it's a fascinating documentary just on the basketball side of things clearly because that's that just brings high drama and 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 so much i it, it's just thrilling to watch the basketball stuff but the family stuff is what makes this so important resonant and and heavy hitting tugging at the heartstrings um it's a gorgeous documentary that is that is a life's work not just for james and the crew that was involved but i mean i'd have to think that gates and ag look back on it now and just you know, wow, what a, what an incredible time capsule to have, you know, your life, uh, um, just embedded in, in, in amber, like, like the fucking mosquito in Jurassic Park. Yeah. You know, it's just like that. uh, It's actually, yeah, it's widely considered by many as one of the great documentaries of all time. It absolutely is. If I was making a top 10 list, it would Mm -hmm. be in the top five. Agreed. This is the one movie when I was like, damn it, I wish I picked 94 (laughs) that I really want to rewatch. I haven't watched it in a long time. Well, it's almost three hours long. It's it's hard to find an excuse to rewatch it. But it justifies its length. It does. And it's not like, like, visually, it's not like stunning or anything. I know, of course not. Not at all. And that's what... You know, if you watch 10 minutes of it just randomly, you'd be like, why do people love this so much? But you really have to sit down and, and take in the totality of the film to really understand why it's so mm-hmm. widely appreciated. So, yeah, it's remarkable. It's a Hoop, great film. Hoop Dreams at number five for me. What's number four? Number four for me is a film that I kept saying, I'm not going to put this on the list, am I? But it's too much fun. It's too... It's too great. It's one of the greatest action films of the last decade, and that's Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Hell yeah. At number four for me. <laughs> Still my favorite Mission Impossible film. I rewatched it the other day, thinking like, do I really need to do this? There's other movies I probably should be watching right now, but as soon as it starts, I'm like, oh my God, this is so entertaining. Where did you watch it? Uh, Well, I, I, I ended up just having to rent it yeah. at $3.99. I was like, why don't I just buy this? I'm going to be watching this for the rest of my life, like every couple of years. I, I've been meaning to rewatch this because, mm-hmm. um, n- I mean, I, I love it, but I saw it only once and it was on like a kind of a tiny TV. Like it was a laptop you didn't see it in the theater? screen. I don't think I saw this. In the I know now. we saw Ghost Protocol together. In the yeah, we saw Protocol and, Probably uh, and Fallout. Fallout. Yeah, but, but not, not this. this one. Yeah. This one, there's something about this one. There's, so uh, this one actually introduces a villain who's existed in the last two Mission Impossible films, and it's actually a worthwhile villain played by Sean Harris. Yeah, that's why you're not disappointed when they bring him back for the most recent. No, one. no, I think they they did it well too how they brought him back. But this is where they introduce him, 
And this one actually gives Jeremy Renner something different and interesting to do. It gives Alec Baldwin a like nice little twist in his story with he's kind of like on both sides. He thinks Ethan is a traitor, but he switches around later on in the film. It's it's kind of a fun thing. But um and yeah, they give a lot more Simon Pegg in this movie. Simon Pegg gradually gets more and more to do as the series goes along. That doesn't hurt. No. But it also the secret weapon, of course, in this film is Rebecca Rebecca Ferguson, who is just proves to be that one thing this series needed to reignite itself a little bit more. She's kind of on again, you don't know if she's on one side or the other, and she's an interesting adversary to Ethan Hunt. Um she is just this introduced her I mean to me, I don't think I'd saw her before this. The whole world kind of saw her now from this movie. And it's uh it's just it has a terrific opening sequence. It has a great set pieces throughout, and it doesn't fail to stick the landing. It is a perfect action film. It never stops moving. It is there's not a moment in the film where, where I thought it, there was a false moment. It's just I doubted Christopher McQuarrie. I was like, is this guy really up for the task? Like Brad Bird kind of took the mantle from J.J. Abrams and was like, all right, we're going here. Let's continue to make this relevant. And Brad Bird succeeded. No one was surprised there. The guy's a talent. But Christopher McQuarrie, Christopher McQuarrie you're like, who is this guy? Like, What's going on here? Um, but he proves to be not only capable, but maybe the best director for this franchise. Between this and Fallout, he's done both, and he's doing the next two as well. I think they've found their guy. Yeah. Cruz loves working with him, and it's just, why why mess with something that's working? Yeah, he seems to innately understand what makes, not only what makes the Mission Impossible franchise exciting, but what's actually so great about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and he's got it down to a formula. Him and Cruz have just seemed to have, like, just brainstorm this and be like, all right, here's what you do. And let's follow this outline and we can do the same thing for each film. Um, and it won't get tired and it won't get stale. Uh, we just got to switch up the, the, our, our pitch speeds and that's about it. You know, they're doing that really well so far. Let's hope they can continue to do so. Yeah. Uh, so I really, really struggle when I get to the, to the top four of my list because I, I'm torn between three and four, where to put three and four, and then one and two, where to flip-flop one and two as well. Um, So this might come as a bit of a surprise to you, but number four on my list is, nope, I'm going to flip it back. That's it. Mm. Yeah. Last second decision. Game time decision. Number four on my list is Christoph Keslowski's Three Colors Red. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that one of my favorite, two of my favorite films of all time are Kislowski films. And one of them is in this trilogy and that's blue. Um, and then the other has the same leading star, Irene of, Jacob, of this, and that's yeah. Irene Jacob. And that's the double, double life of Veronique. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a really terrific film. Um, it's the closer of the trilogy and it's a really nice little note to put on it. Um, so Irene Jacob in this film hits a dog with her car and figures out who the owner is, goes to tell him what happened and finds out that he is 
spying on his neighbors with surveillance equipment, listening to their phone calls and recording them and such. And uh, they developed this very strange relationship. I, I don't even necessarily want to say friendship, but I, I mean, I guess by the end it, it becomes one. Um, and that's just such a weird premise for a film. Weird setup. Um, yeah. But it's in classic Koslowski style. It's filmed gorgeously. I mean, it feels like a dream. Um, and Jacob gives another just barn burner of a performance. Uh, you know, uh, ha- I don't speak French, but um, but some of these things are just so universal that uh, I, I find myself just kind of taken by her performance in this and just the way that she, you, you can you can tell so much just in her body language and the way that other actors on screen respond to her, especially uh, Jean-Louis Trignon, who is who's the old man in this, and he's also in the Haneke film uh, Amour. He plays the the old man in this. Um, it, they're both terrific, but uh, she's just she's fantastic. Between this and the Double Life of Veronique, I feel like now I just need to see everything she was ever in. You know? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely drawn to her performances. Yeah, clearly. I don't know. I've never looked her up and seen how much she's actually done in her career. Yeah, but I totally understand. I think she's excellent as well. Um. So. Eventually, I need to see Three Colors White because I've never seen it, and that will close the book on the Three Colors trilogy. And it's my understanding you've not seen it either because we, we, I think we talked about it the other night. We have not seen White as that well. That sounds like a really fun throwback one of these days. We should, just, we should both put an why end not? cap on it. Yeah. And, I, and I'm a huge Julie Delpy fan, so yeah, exactly. why not? We should, the, we should have seen this by now. The three lead actresses in these three films, Binoche, Jacob and Delpy. I mean, those Great. are absolute classic French actresses. Great actresses. So, uh, yes. Especially in the 90s, you know, especially when you think about like the 90s as talking about a time capsule. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that seems important. So that was number four for me. All right. And here we go. Top three. Handing out awards. Let's do it. What you got? Bronze for me is uh, Mariel Heller's directorial debut, The Diary of a Teenage Girl. Um, Liked it a lot when it first came out. Um, liked it even more this week. It is really kind of um, one of the more honest and frank and pulling no punches type of film. Not just coming of age film. This is about a young girl, 15 year old girl growing up in San Francisco in the mid 70s with a single mother. Uh, and not just kind of honest in the way that a lot of coming-of-age films aren't, especially American coming-of-age films, but in a way it depicts the female experience. Because watching this with my significant other, she very much pointed out that many times throughout this film that that is absolutely accurate. That's how any young girl would have acted. And that is an exact quote I even pulled from my own. I can tell you I said that exact thing. Same thing. These things were said many times throughout this film. Um, And so while I couldn't pull from my own experiences, obviously, it was interesting to watch, you know, in that way with someone else who can say, this is so honest. This is, she 
she at one point she said this is like very awkward but it's it's true life and it's almost she said this is like this is like a very even more sexual and strange eighth grade version of eighth grade huh um the movie is extremely r-rated it is very sexual it is very revealing in a lot of ways this film is about this girl kind of talking to herself on a tape recorder and drawing and living kind of her own world while her mom goes on a searching bender. Um, her mom's played by Kristen Wiig. She's a probably an alcoholic, probably a, doesn't pay enough attention to her two daughters, um, is a little too worried about her herself to care about her daughters. But um, she's dating this guy who's a classically good looking guy, but a is kind of just there for the ride, played by Alexander Skarsgård. He's perfectly cast in this movie. Um, but the role of the daughter, who is in every scene of this film, her name's Minnie, and she's played by Belle Pally, who we recently saw in The King of Staten Island. I don't really remember anything else I've seen her in other than these two films. She is an English actress, and you really can't tell. Yeah. Ever, in these two performances. She was 23 when this was made. She's playing a 15-year-old very authentically. She seems 15. Um, and she, this movie is quite literally about her giving her like oral dialogue on her own tape recorder to herself for no one to hear about her relationship with her mother's boyfriend. She tries to seduce him. It works. They embark on an affair and like any young girl, sees that as this man loves her. And this causes all sorts of awkward moments and, you know, inevitably it's going to come to a head at some point. Yeah. Um, the way this, this, this man is, deals with this situation is remarkably whew, cringe-inducing at times. It is a, it's a confrontational movie. It doesn't hold anything back. And I think it speaks a lot of truth to how something like this would actually happen. And um, it never, it never looks down on its protagonist. It never shows you, never says anything like what this girl's doing is wrong. She's a 15 year old girl and she's living her life in the only way she knows how. And this film is very honest, but it's also really funny. Um, I think it's, I would I think it's one of the more overlooked movies of the last few years, I think. Even though it did open to really good reviews, I still don't think enough people saw this movie. And I think with Mariel Heller's subsequent like kind of success with the last two movies she's made, she got Oscar nominations for both. Yeah. Acting wise with um both act I think no, I don't think no Richard E. Grant was nominated for can you Can ever you forgive, forgive me? me? I don't. I don't know if McCarthy was. McCarthy too. was. Okay, they yeah, were they both, both nominated, and then Hanks was nominated for the uh, Mister Rogers movie that she made. Um, both great films, but I think this is her best. So, hopefully, people go back and check this out. I think it's. Yeah, I, I had always skipped it just because of the title. I thought, well, it, of course, I thought yeah. it was like one of those Netflix teen comedies. So I just, you know, I never gave it any. The title's like, misleading. For yeah. Sure. <laughs> Um, for my number three, uh, it's a title that is not misleading at all. Um, 
I'm glad that I saved it for number three because there's lots to talk about. Um, for a while, this was one of my favorite films of the whole decade. And that we've talked about it once before, and that's Robert Redford's quiz show. Mm. This freaking cast, man. Ray Fiennes, John Tuturo, Rob Morrow, David Paymer, Paul Schofield, Hank Azaria, Christopher McDonald, Mira Sorvino, Griffin Dunn, Martin Scorsese shows up. Uh, <laughs> Callista Flockhart is in it. Like, it, it, and, and, and it goes even deeper than that. Barry Levinson is in it. It has both Barry Levinson and Martin Scorsese in acting performances. Um, yeah. Uh, it's a period piece that is impeccably staged. Uh, I mean, like, and not just the cars and the buildings and the advertisements, but the costumes and the way people speak. It feels so authentically you know 40s and 50s um and it's about the quiz show scandals of that era with nbc and and uh um oh god geritol is the, oh god, is the yes. name of the of the tonic that mm-hmm. is the sponsor of it um christopher mcdonald plays the the talk show host uh, of course uh he does. john tutoro is the brainiac who's been winning week after week after week on the show and they need to get new blood in there and that's where they find ray fine's character who's a who's a a affluent um professor at harvard who comes from a very uh intelligentsia family and uh he's good looking and they need to get uh john tuturo's um very homely and jewish character off of this show (laughs) to get more eyeballs on the tv sets and um man it's it's a powerhouse at, at performance from Tuturo, but like really the whole cast is just incredible in it. Um, and so assured the directing that, that Redford does here. Um, great score. It's, it's paced really well. It doesn't feel as long as it is. I have always really loved this movie. I've really admired this movie because of how well put together the whole thing is. It's just, I'm, I, uh, I was surprised that it, that it that it tumbled all the way down to number four, and then at the last minute it ticked back up to number three. <laughs> there you go. But your um, admiration steps yeah, in again, exactly. And I think the reason I gave it the edge over Red is is like the the impressiveness of of like the totality of the filmmaking. Man, like this is a big cast, big budget. Got to get everything right. This could have been so dull and could have been a big flop, and instead it was nominated for best picture bunches of of award nominations not just on the directing side but but i mean it's it was a big big hit and it sh- could have very well been something that was just so dull that's a good point it could have been very boring this, yeah this kind of content very well could have been um i haven't seen this in a really long time i'd love to rewatch it i've always liked it as well yeah. not i don't know if i love it but then again i haven't watched it in a long time so i'll have to put this on so, the list soon so we're at the top two now are you um as painstaked over the decision at one, two as I am, or is this no, kind of clear cut for you? These were always my one and two okay. always. Maybe in the year they came out, I was like slightly like, okay, which one's better? But one of the movies I've rewatched and been addicted to more than any other film from that year. So it took number one, but number two for me is a film by a director that I've kind of championed over the last 10 years and 
not a lot of people seem to care about him. And that's James Ponsold, and that's his film, The End of the Tour. Uh, this might be his best film. I do love The Spectacular now, but um, this film that he made, which is essentially about two people in the span of a week's time, where right after David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest comes out to monumental acclaim, the writer for Rolling Stone, David Lipsky, is actually given the okay from Wallace himself to come and visit him and interview him about anything and everything, whatever he wants to talk about. After the release of this novel that is just the whole world is talking about. And this is in the mid-90s. Um, Jesse Eisenberg plays the Rolling Stone journalist. And of all people, Jason Siegel plays David Foster Wallace. When this came out, I remember people being like, what the fuck? Really? Yeah. A is lot that of really going to work? A lot of people were up in arms about it because he doesn't look like him. He doesn't sound like him. He doesn't. His mannerisms aren't right. All of it. He's just some comedian. He's a comedy actor. Like, yeah. can he really do anything else? Well, Jason Siegel is let's give him a little bit more credit than that. Even at the time, I was like on board. because Well, I've always been a huge fan. Yeah. I just think Jason Siegel, much like Seth Rogen, doesn't get enough credit for the actual creation of these things he's in. He's behind a lot of the creation of these comedies he's been involved in. And like many times, as we've said on this podcast, comedy is very hard to make well. If you can be successfully funny as a comedian and with comedy films, then you are probably a pretty intelligent person. Yeah. And I think... A lot of his overseen greatness as an actor comes out in this movie. Um, this performance is amazing. I said to Jess the other day, I said, while we're watching it, I said, you know, people doubted him and doubted him and doubted him. And then the movie came out and he's great in it, but no one cared. They just said, they just kind of said, the doubters just kind of said, I don't even want to comment on it because they can't say anything terrible yeah, about they, the performance. They were probably embarrassed that they gave him so much shit for it. But the movie kind of came and went. No one talked about it much. It, yeah. didn't, it didn't get any recognition. Um, and I think this movie is... Ponsel was the right person to make this because he just kind of gives it this grounded feeling and just lets the two guys have conversations. And it never gets boring. He always keeps it very personal and there's an emotional core between the two. And... Um, there's something really engaging about the film, even though there's not a lot happening. Um, it has a very strong emotional core that kind of reminds you of what Linklater does best with just a few things, just a couple of actors and, and some dialogue. Um, Eisenberg is very good. I think Eisenberg <clears throat> kind of gets another guy who doesn't get a lot of credit for his abilities. I mean, he does play the similar roles a lot, and he has those same ticks a lot of times, but I think he brings enough difference to some of his roles that I think is kind of underappreciated as well. These two guys are excellent in this movie. Um, there's a couple of supporting performances that kind of pop in and out. Anna Klumsky as Lipsky's girlfriend, and then you have Joan Cusack, who shows up later on in this film for just a few minutes, but it's very memorable. Overall, though, I think it's just this kind of bond between two creators 
where Wallace is almost interviewing Lipsky too, as this is all going on. And never, yeah, he never kind of basks in the, oh, you came all the way here for, here for me because I'm some sort of genius kind of spotlight. He willingly wants to know about Lipsky as well. And that forms this strange friendship bond throughout the film that I really gravitated towards. So this movie's always been kind of like one of those movies that I always want to kind of stick up for. Did, did you, did you bring this up during our road trip films uh, uh, list? I don't think I did. I don't remember either. I don't think it just kind of slipped your mind. I have no idea. Yeah. I think that probably, I probably didn't even remember that that was technically a road trip film. Yeah. I don't think I talked about it then. Okay. Well, number two on my list. Um, okay. Uh, I'm going to keep this at number two because I don't want recency bias to come into play because I just watched this last night for the first time. And first time watch and absolutely fell head over heels in love with this film. Um, and I'm going to try and explain it as best I can. And that is Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express. You finally watched it. I finally watched it. I've been putting it off for years and years. And man, I wish I'd done this earlier. This thing is gorgeous. It's another movie I haven't watched either. Really? Uh, get on it, man. I'll <laughs> probably give it to you as a throwback pretty soon then. Um, I mean, uh, poof, boy. So it's, um, you know, if you, if you want to categorize it as a romantic comedy, which it's definitely romantic. And it's funny enough that you could classify it as a comedy. I would say it's one of the greatest romantic comedies ever made. Um, it's, it's that good. So it focuses around, it's two separate stories. It's a tale of two halves here. And, but it focuses around two different Hong Kong policemen who um, have recently been broken up with by stewardesses, no less. Both um, of them. <laughs> yeah. And, um, uh, and you know, it's how they deal with that breakup. So the first one, he, his way of dealing with it is, um, his birthday is on May 1st and she broke up with him on April 1st. He thought it was a April fool's joke, but it wasn't. Um, and so he, his decision is to go and buy a can of pineapple, <laughs> um, at the gro- at the convenience store, but he'll only buy the ones that expire on May 1st. So, and, and as it gets closer and closer to that date, it's harder and harder to find one. Um, and he has a, a brief run in with this drug smuggler woman who's like, who's like smuggling drugs through this like Indian family and like hiding it in their clothes and in their toys and in their <laughs> luggage and even has them fill, fill it with condoms and shove it up their butts. Um, and <laughs> stuff goes wrong and she goes on the lam and meets up with him at a bar and he invites her out and um long story short she just crashes in the hotel room and he just uh lets her sleep and then orders takeout and watches two old black and white movies in the hotel room and then the second and, and that that first half is terrific the second half i would have watched a whole film just based on the second half it's fantastic it's tony long from in the mood for love mm-hmm. and this other woman who is delightful um and i think let me look up her name because because i i she deserves all of the credit and that's um uh fei wong is is her name so this other stewardess breaks up with tony lung's character 
And he keeps going to the same snack bar every day to order a chef salad. And the owner of the snack bar and him, you know, they're always talking. He's always trying to hook him up with a different girl that works there. Well, one day this manic pixie dream girl starts working there. And um, she develops a quiet secret crush on him. And the stewardess comes back and drops off a letter for him that has his keys to his apartment in it. So this girl takes it upon herself to sneak into his apartment all the time when she knows he's not going to be around. She (laughs) cleans the place. She just kind of like hangs out in there and does whatever she wants, rearranges things. He never notices. And, um, and, uh, she comes close to getting caught a couple of times. And that's all I want to say. I don't, I don't want to ruin anything because where it ends up going is just, yeah, I need to see it. It's fantastic. This, and so as you can tell by me prattling on about it, not only is it just engaging and enthralling and romantic, but it, clearly it's a very unique uh, premise um, with unique characters with their own little quirks. And it's shot in this way that's, I mean, you've seen In the Mood for Love. Mm-hmm. It's, it's beautiful and it's shot similar to that. The only thing that keeps me from giving it a perfect five stars is um, it does this almost Danny Boyle thing that was very common in the 90s especially in asian cinema where um it almost looks like kind of like that choppy freeze frame slow motion thing Mm -hmm. it's very music video-esque um yes i've seen clips from it that i've seen these that you're mentioning yeah and like it's not as annoying because you almost he almost has a reason for doing it in Mm -hmm. this but um it's the only thing that took me out of it because i don't find that kind of photography very beautiful but everything else was gorgeous whether it was the performances the use of music especially in the second half of the film the mamas and the papas song california dreaming plays about 13 or 14 times it becomes a recurring theme and i don't think i'll ever be able to listen to it the same way ever again um it's just it's it's absolutely gorgeous it's absolutely like a fever dream and and i i fell hopelessly in love with this film um while my number one film is far more entertaining and crowd pleasing and talk about original, um, I wouldn't be surprised if years from now, uh, Chunking Express grows and grows and grows on me and becomes one of my favorite films of the last 30 years. Okay. This is a absolute slam dunk of a film. A lot of people would agree with you. I've still never seen it. Like I said, I, I need to watch it. You're, you're going to be getting it uh, as a throwback eventually, probably before the end of this year. Okay. Because it's it's mandatory viewing. Uh, I know by this point the kind of films that you like and you you will not dislike this one. All right. So number one with a bullet for both of us, huh? You won't, you you know mine. It's It's a film that I talk about a lot. I've talked about it on this podcast. What is it? It's Noah Baumbach's Mistress America. Oh, that's right. Um, still can't, it's kind of hard to believe that it's just five years old because of how much I talk about it. It's still only five years old. It's strange. Yeah. It feels like this movie's been around a while. Um, this is, I think, last time I talked about this, well, you had it on a list as well. I had it on my list of the best comedies of the decade. Yeah, and I was unaware that you liked it as almost as much as I do. You I had it even both, higher than I did. I think we both consider this his best film. We both do, yeah. Yeah. He's made a lot of movies. He's made a lot of movies that are more acclaimed than this movie. I don't think many people would agree that this is his best movie. I really don't. I mean, well, they can fight us in the streets because he's, is, he's never made anything this 
breezy. Quick-witted. And, yeah. It is remarkably paced. It, it, it gets 84 minutes long. It moves, and it has two actresses up front who move at the pace of the movie. Greta Gerwig is on fire in this movie. Her performance as Brooke Cardenas is maybe her best performance. I think it always will be because I don't think she's going to act much anymore for good reason. She doesn't need to. She, sh- she shouldn't act anymore unless she's going to be in her own movies. Um, but Lola Kirk, uh, as Tracy Fishko in this film, is every bit as good. Yeah, it is her best performance. It is. Sadly, she hasn't really formed into anything too great yet. I'll still give her time. Um, but yeah, uh, Bombach writing this with Gerwig after collaborating with her on Greenberg um, really finds something. I think the two of them work really well together. Bombach was already a great writer, but there's a Gerwigness to this script too that was missing from some of his other stuff that I think fully connects everything here. I mean, this movie is essentially not about a whole lot. It's about a girl who's new to college in New York, who has a stepsister-to-be, who she kind of lets her give her a tour of the city and goes under her wing, even though they don't know each other. They never, they've never met when this movie starts. She just has her number, and she decides to give her a call, and Brooke takes Tracy literally everywhere around New York City, and, 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 and for better or for worse, teaches her whatever she's learned in her life, mm. and they're questionable prophecies <laughs> throughout this movie, but it makes for very fun moments. A lot of great sequences. There's cat stealing in this movie and there's all sorts of like revenge tactics that happen in relationships, past relationships, future relationships. Uh, it's, it's a remarkably funny film and it is one of the most rewatchable movies of the last several years for me. So that's number one on my list. Yeah, I I should have remembered that this was yeah. going to be number one on your list. Um, it's hard to remember this from 2015. Yeah, I, it would be in my top six of 2015 as well. It's just, it's a remarkable comedy and mm. it's just a great film. It is. And uh, like you said, they're both on fire. They're great. In the film. And it helps that they, they are given terrific dialogue. Absolutely. To, uh, to, to spit back and forth at one another. Um, again, you know what my number one is, um, uh, everybody is hoping that I, that the next two words that I say are what I'm they amazed. are. I, I didn't think it was going to make your list at all. I spent so much time early on, uh, uh, hating on Pulp Fiction mm-hmm. without ever having seen the whole thing. And then I saw it and I spent a whole lot of time being like, well, Pulp Fiction's overrated. Um, and then I rewatched it again like a year or so ago and was like, shit, man, why, do you, why are you such a buzzkill? This is a phenomenal film. It's one of the 50 greatest films ever made. Um, and so I've, I've come all the way back around on Pulp Fiction. It's, it's, it's a perfect film. It's, it is well acted, well directed, impeccably written. It's, the pacing is great. The music is great. The I mean, in every facet uh, that a film needs to click and work, it works like five-star caliber at each of those levels. And, um, and that's really difficult to pull off. 
But uh, man, this thing is just, it's, uh, I mean, without, how do you talk about a film like this without sounding completely hyperbolic? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's really difficult to do, but like the cast from the top down are just, they're all uh, at career best or, or, you know, or close to it. Um, whether that's, you know, the big guys like Jackson, Travolta and Will Willis, or, you know, you get down on further on down the list with like Roth and Rames and, you know, like it, everybody is just at their absolute peak of powers. And a lot of that has to do with the, the script that they're given to work around is, is something completely unique that had never been done before, had never, ever been done before. And since uh, since has been imitated. Uh, imitated ad nauseum and still never even close to replicated by even Tarantino himself. Even the it's, breaking of the timeline has been imitated so much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just, it's, it's one of the greatest films ever made. And, uh, and I couldn't, I could, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't put it anywhere other than number one. It is his best film. It is. I think it is. Yeah, it probably is. See, see, there's that that old version of me that's that's not wanting to give credit where it's where it's due. <laughs> it's like, what do you want from me, Andy? I put it at number one. It's a trendsetter. <laughs> it is. It, but it, but yeah, it, it's it a big really moment. Is. It really is. And it, I mean, and we could we could go on for the next you know the next fifty three minutes. Talking, we don't need to talking about how you know it it changed the way Hollywood and and cinema was 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 marketed. And the way the way Hollywood fetched its directors and writers and screenplays for the next, I mean, up until today, they, mm-hmm. they, I mean, it it changed the game because it was so so groundbreaking and became such a part of of um, of American cinema. It was so ubiquitous with within the entire culture. It was, you know, this is a big monumental film. Yeah, and I got to be honest, I really thought you're going to leave it off. No, come on, get really real. Did. What would I have put here, Clifford? I mean, <laughs> blue chips, man. Oh, we got to mention blue don't, chips. Don't. We got to mention what? it. You know what? You're right. Every chance that we get, <laughs> I, I tried so hard to put blue chips on this list. It was yeah. probably number seven or eight. You know? Well, you know what else we have to mention because it's like an obligation for us to mention this film. Number seven on my list was Ex Machina. <laughs> All right, All right. I'll bring up blue chips if you bring up Ex yeah. Machina. That's fine. The two. Hey, most mentioned films on this podcast, yeah, yeah. Blue what, Chips and Ex Mach. Was it really your number seven? Yeah. It yeah. was, it was, Blue I've, Chips was my I've, number seven. It's grown on me quite a bit. I, I, I've always admired it. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Because it's my number one. Um, uh, another thing that, that you and, and a couple of other friends said I absolutely had to watch if I was going to make this list, and that was the Terry Zweigoff documentary, Crumb. Mm-hmm. Terrific. I like it a like, lot. Really terrific. It's just such a fucking bummer. Oh, yes, it is. Well, <laughs> Zweigoff, that's Zweigoff, man. That's true. That's in his wheelhouse. But this this is like, it's, you feel like, you feel like you need a shower afterwards. Oh, definitely. And then Crumb like, himself is shower worthy. Yeah. And then when the credits start scrolling and you see that like his <laughs> brother killed himself like yeah. a month after shooting, oh, it's, it's, and, like all of it. It's, it's just, not uplifting. No, sure. and that's why I, I, you know, I had to, I went with Hoop Dreams as my uplifting documentary. Yeah, very uplifting. And I watched it right after Crumb because I was that's like, I need, to, I need to watch, I need to wash Crumb out that's of my, a rough out of my one mouth. one punch. Yeah, but at least, at least with, with Hoop Dreams, there was some hopefulness or whatever at the end of it. So mm-hmm. speaking of that, real quick on that, uh, you know, it's been rumored for a long time that Steve James is going to do a follow-up to that. I would watch that it would in an amazing. instant. I, I had thought about that 
you know, while I was watching it, I was like, I wonder where these guys are now. You know, I found like a Guardian, yeah. a Guardian article about where, where, where they are now, but it was from a few years ago. And yeah. It's like, I want to know what they're doing now. You know, they both played like a season or two of college basketball. We might find out it. soon enough. Oh man. What a list. All right. That was fun. What a list. But the show's not over. It's not. We've come to break time. Get yourself a glass of whatever beverage you desire and settle back in with us in 60 seconds when we throw down on a throwback. Welcome back to the show. As much as I love the new Charlie Kaufman film, I'm thinking of ending things. I was a little lost during the second car ride scene in which Jesse Buckley transforms into film critic Pauline Kael and begins wax, waxing philosophic about the 1974 John Cassavetes film, A Woman Under the Influence. So we decided that it would be a terrific choice for this week's throwback challenge. Um, so we, uh, I was able to watch this on HBO. Same. Yeah, and um, took this thing in. It was uh, over two hours of a 70s film that, uh, right out of the gate, I got to say, this is an example of a film that makes me better understand why you are so into 70s cinema. I was pretty blown away by this, man. I got to say, the first half is better than the second half, but... um, I now want to devour Cassavetti's filmography. I don't know why it took me this long to see this for the first time from front to back. I've seen bits and pieces. Um, and I've also seen several Cassavetti's films. I'm a huge fan. Um, kind of known as the father of the independent film. Because he started in the late 50s. Kind of the finance your own movie, do it yourself, do whatever you can do to scrounge up your own money to make yeah. a movie. That was not a thing, you know, before him here in this country. And, um, but by this time when this came out, it was like already a well-known kind of thing. Like there were big directors doing big things that had far surpassed him in popularity, even though he was working well before Coppola and Scorsese, several other filmmakers. But he, was, he always just did his own thing. There are things in this movie, certain sequences, that you just feel the influence in certain movies today, like Safdie Brothers, for instance. Yes, I, I felt they, a lot of that. They have this lived-in, on-the-streets-of-New-York realism in their movies that, honestly, if, I've never read interviews where they mention Cassavetes, but I, I would... Be willing to bet. Oh, yeah. He's a huge influence on their work. Yeah. Um, there, This movie is entirely a portrait of just basically two people. And none of it is flashy. None of it is Hollywoody. None of it is 
look, we're making a movie. It really does feel like you're just stepping in on the lives of these two people in this chaotic world. Um, towering performances. Towering. Performances. From both of them. Yes. Like, okay, I, I know that Gina Rollins, her performance is much flashier and it's, you know, she's she's playing crazy in the film. And so you're going to get a lot of a lot of attention for that. And she's mesmerizing she's so good. to watch. But I didn't know that Peter Falk had this in him, you know, because I, the only thing I really know Peter Falk from is Columbo, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, and while Columbo is a blast, <laughs> it's much different, it, you know, it doesn't show his range or anything. This was, I was shocked mm-hmm. by how good he is in this. There's a lot of, um, things you can uncover with Falk, just the Falk Cassavetes dynamic. He was in a film Cassavetes wrote and directed called Husbands earlier. And they did not get along. And Falk even told him, he said, listen, I think you're a great artist, but I will never let you direct me in another movie. They hated each other. Really? And then he came around maybe a year later and he said, I want to I wanna be in another one of your movies. I think maybe I had it wrong the first time. I want to give it another chance. And he read this script and he personally gave $500,000 of his own money to get this movie made. Wow. Cassavetes was... Always the kind of guy who had to act in films to fund his directing efforts. Mm-hmm. Rosemary's Baby was a big one for him to get financing to make films like this. And that happened a lot. I think that's the only reason he really acted in films, to get financing for his passion projects. Um, and what he does here with both of these actors is, I mean, it's hard to even describe. It's it's a tough watch. It, it's a lot to ask, but when you are in the mood for a two-hour, 30-minute-plus just straight portrait of a marriage and a portrait of mental illness in a time when they didn't have a lot of data to kind of diagnose someone, yeah. when, when this husband is left to just fend for himself to try to save his wife, and they have children, and she's a loving mother, and it's hard to watch as she deteriorates mentally. Um, it's fascinating because it, it is, you know, it is this old and there, this wasn't a time when we didn't have the advancements we have now and the help that can be given mm-hmm. now. And to just see these two kind of live it out essentially. Yeah. And try to just make do with what they have while this happens. Uh, it is, Yes, it is long, but I think if you are truly immersed in these characters, which I understand if you're not, but if you are the type of person that loves this kind of study um, and this kind of gritty, just realist piece of work, it's this is a very, very good film. Yeah, I was pretty blown away, you know, like just completely blown away. Um, man, Gina Rollins is just, she is, uh, it's one of, it's, one of the best depictions of mental illness I've ever seen on screen ever. Like I agree. absolutely ever. Like it, man, Russell Crowe was nominated for, uh, uh, did he win for a beautiful mind? I don't think he did. Cause like whatever, who gives a shit? Because yeah. that, that is just awful in comparison to this. Like how many Oscars did they give her for this? You couldn't have given her just one. Like, 
this is worthy of multiples. Yeah, yeah. That 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 just hand performance you mentioned is very glossy, very Hollywood, just very under a sheen of so much Hollywood kind of tropes. And this is just so gritty. gritty of all that. It's so gritty and authentic, and like you really, really feel all of it with her, and then at the same time, the pain that mm. her husband is going through, feeling helpless. Helpless to take care of her, helpless, helpless to take care of his children in her absence when he has to send her away, you know, and, and he's shitty at it, but he admits that he's shitty at it. Yeah. There's the scene where they're driving home from the beach and he's giving them all beer and then he gets them drunk when they, by the time they get home. It's, yeah. You know, this movie's just going to say no one has the answers. No one's perfect, but we all have to try, you know, and that's what this guy's doing. He's not a good guy, but he's not a bad guy. Yeah, exactly. You know? they, they, these are nuanced characters. And there's so many of these scenes that linger. You know, the the the, the scene where where the 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 doctor comes over and and it's just it's just Falk Rollins, the doctor and Falk's mother. And they're trying to calm her down and give her a shot so that they can have her committed. Mm -hmm. That scene goes on a lot longer than you'd expect. Yeah, a lot of the scenes you know, do in this film. Th there's the scene where th there she's trying to have a party with these kids. Oh boy. Yeah. And the kid's dad is there and you know, it's just there's I I could go on forever. Th this movie really really shook me. This is four and a half maybe. It is a strong stars. film. It is four and a half for me as well. Yeah, yeah it's, it's uh... um it 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 has some pacing issues in the yeah, second half. The second half isn't nearly as good as the first half, but um but it's still pretty, pretty damn impressive. And I think it also ends impressively because it's not, it's not going to give you a wrapped up kind of resolution. No, I, I actually really like how ambiguous the end is where mm -hmm. he's just like, you know, don't worry about it. We'll figure mm -hmm. it out, you know? And their lives go on. Yeah. And you know what? You make your own conclusions at that point. Yeah. Because their lives just had to. They what had are to. the choices they fucking have? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like... Um, and, and that kind of like brutal honesty in the face of everything else was, I think it's a quite a great love story to be honest, because this isn't, you know, there's so many points where you're just like, okay, well this, this could just, he could just cut ties and be gone and move away from all of this. Yeah. But there's a deep love they have for each other. in this movie. Yeah. And I guess that like maybe a lot of that probably paralleled Cassavetes and, and Roland's love story of themselves, mm -hmm. you know, like, mm -hmm. um, I was blown away that she's still alive. Yeah. She turned yeah. 90 this year. Yeah. She's still around. Falk died not too long ago. Yeah. It wasn't too long ago. There's a, there's an interview from about six years ago, maybe 2014, I think with Rollins and Falk just talking about this time. Oh man. It's really I gotta, fascinating. I got to find that. There's even a moment where he said, you know, he, he, he read a note that John sales of all people, uh, wrote about, what Cassavetes did for him as a, an artist. Like he basically sales essentially said that Cassavetes is the reason he even wanted to make movies. And Falk takes a moment to say, I love John sales films. He's like, that guy is a unique American voice. Like Cassavetes was it's a strange little moment. Peter Falk was, is as an actor and as a person more, I don't know, more um, insightful than you would think he would be Yeah, based on, our previous knowledge of him, like you said. Which was almost entirely Columbo, yeah, where right. he's just like this bumbling guy that like mm -hmm. occasionally shows that he's like, with a wink, he's actually smart, you know? So he shows this range. I mean, now you're thinking like, do I, I need to look into Falk more 
that yeah, I me previous too. did, you know? Yeah, exactly. Did, exactly. Clearly there's more to him than meets the eye. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you love this as much as I did. That's, yeah. That's good to know. Well, that is our show for the day. That's, that's it. So remember to subscribe to the Film Harmonica on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review and a generous rating if you're so inclined. Subscribe also on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever else you happen to get your podcasts. And send your suggestions for the throwback challenge to thefilmharmonic at gmail.com. Now, we will be back with a whole slew of new films for your cinephile ears to feast upon. First up, we will treat you to a double dose of five good questions in which I will ask Andy about Antonio Campos' new film, The Devil All the Time, starring Tom Holland and Robert Pattinson, among many others. And then he, in turn, will grill me on the new Janelle Monet vehicle, Antebellum, produced by Jordan Peele. And then we will both review the new film from Sean Durkin, The Nest, starring Jude Law and Carrie Coon. That's a fun variety there. Yeah. But for that reason, we will not have a pick six next week. No pick six. Way too many movies to fit in. So why don't we throw a couple more on the, <laughs> onto <Right>. the slate? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're going to have a throwback challenge. For our throwback challenge next week, we are going to revisit an old format. The one where we each give one another a film that we feel absolutely must be crossed off the other's watch list. This is always a fun one to revisit. We did it not too long ago, I think. Mm -hmm. Once, a couple months maybe ago. Yeah, yeah. It was like last month I, I gave you Mommy and you uh, gave yeah. me... I don't know. Of course I don't. Of course Probably I, Clifford. Yeah, of course I don't remember <laughs> what it was, but... Uh... I don't remember. It's odd. Yeah, I really don't remember what you gave me. But I've got one for you now. Mm. I, I thought I, I thought I remember then I lost. No, I don't remember. You have one for me now? I do, yeah. Okay. I toyed between a couple. Okay. One of them is the one I didn't decide to go with, which we were supposed to watch the other day, a short film from Raymond Kinnon. Oh, yeah, but yeah. But I chose to go with uh, Kerry Joji Fukunaga's film from 2009, Sin Nombre. Oh. A film that you've had on your watch list for quite a while. A film that I've had... Physical copy, right? The physical DVD copy that I got from your brother's ex-girlfriend <laughs> yes. years and years you ago. You still have it? Oh, probably, yeah. I mean, Locate I it. I don't throw movies dig away. Dig that thing up. Yeah, I'm going to dig that up. You're going to watch Sinombre this week. What, um... Is it in English? No, it is not. It is not? What What language is it in? Sinombre is in... Let's see here. I mean, the, the, it, it sounds like it's in Spanish. It is. I believe so. I just wanted okay. to get it right. I needed to look it up. Well, this is, it is interesting because the film I'm giving you is also in Spanish. Interesting. And that is Pedro Almodovar's Pain and Glory from mm, just a couple of years Very ago. recent. Yeah. I, um, I was pretty, pretty floored by this when I saw it, and I was almost every bit as floored to find out that you hadn't seen it i don't know why i didn't watch it for that year's consideration i um, mean i've barely seen any almodovar and you've seen a lot more than i love I his film exactly yeah. so um i'm excited to share one that i've actually seen with you so excellent I, uh, this is a funny kind of coincidence thing. yeah the, yeah, yeah I, I was joking with you off mic earlier i was like what if um what if our throwback challenges are both from the same director because i thought you might give me like Itu mama tambien or something you know um, well, but this is a director you like a lot, though, that I gave you. Yeah, absolutely. We, again, we were talking about his him. first film. We were talking about him earlier off, off, off mic as oh, well. Oh, for the Bond film. Because right. we were talking about the Bond film and just how unique of a, of a director he is, just a visual style. And mm -hmm. So two Spanish language throwback challenges. This should be a lot of fun. 
And uh, and I am excited to cross scene Nombre off the mm-hmm. list because because I've been sitting on that that hard shell DVD for case a decade. For, for, for like yeah it's seriously almost a decade for like probably maybe even over one yeah I don't, I, don't I don't know I don't know how long it's been but the movie's eleven years old so poor, close ba- to- poor Bailey's never getting that that <laughs> DVD back She's never getting it back no nope. this right. is going to be put to use. Absolutely. This was a fun episode. We thought it was going to end up being shorter than usual. <laughs> of course not. And we're just about right on time schedule. Yep. So <laughs> This is our new norm. <laughs> Whether we yeah. like it or not, <laughs> next week we're going to squ- we p- took out the pick six so that we could make this thing exactly 50-something minutes. We'll see. And it'll be like an hour and nine yeah. minutes. Yeah. Just, yeah. just yeah. Like clockwork. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, on that note, we need to get out of here quick, fast, and in a hurry. So we will see you next time on the Film Harmon. Substitute.